This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, World Without Cats, and the author is Bonham Richards. And Bonham joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bonham. Hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. This is such a unique hypothesis, a plot line to think that all the cats would be destroyed and what effect that would have on humanity. You say this about your book, World Without Cats is a tale in which an infectious disease affects the household cats of the world. It begins in the western United States and spreads all over the planet, threatening to wipe out the species. How would humans be affected by the demise of a common domestic companion such as our cats? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever thought of that. So, interesting uh, storyline here. Bonham, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write your book. I am a retired college educator. I uh, was uh, on the faculty at Cal State San Bernardino for 10 years, and then uh, I served as a lab director in biology at USC. Uh, It was in the early 80s when I was writing uh, lab materials for biology courses uh, that I got the idea for this book. It just came to me fully formed. The plot didn't gradually develop in my mind. It just popped in. And uh, I acquired my first computer in the early 80s, and it was sitting there with a word processor, and what do you do with it? Well, this is what I did with it. Well, that's a a long time ago, and... Yes. I was reading where a, kind of a unique situation saved your book. I stopped working on it a few years after I had begun. And I did so because I was working full-time and I just couldn't find the time and I got frustrated. Then I retired in 1992 and moved to Camarillo. And after a few years, I began to think about the story again and eventually I did resume work, and now it's done. Well, it's kind of interesting the way books come about. Uh, it's, every author has a unique story, and this one, with this strange, fatal, uh, and how do you pronounce that kind of disease, Hemor? How do you pronounce that? Hemorrhagic. Yeah. Hemorrhagic? Hemorrhagic. Hemorrhagic that, disease. That refers to bleeding, of course, and... Uh, an, an example would be uh, HIV, I think, causes... Oh, Ebola. Ebola is a, a much better example. Okay. That's a notorious hemorrhagic disease. Now, in your characters, your character development, uh, you have three interesting characters. Uh, how, are these based on folks you know? 
Um, two of the characters are entirely made up. That's Noah Chamberlain, the molecular biologist, and Vera Barnett, the veterinarian. The third major character, Angelo Cracmo, is indeed based on somebody I once knew, but I'm not going to tell you whom <laughs> to protect his privacy. Right. So tell us about Vera, and is she the first one who discovers this, or is it Noah? Well, uh, Vera is a vet, and she has a friend who has lots of cats, the traditional cat lady, if you will. And uh, her friend calls her out, and her, her cats are sick with this disease. And uh, at first, Vera thinks it's a bacterial disease, and she takes some of the dead cats and does necropsies to try to figure it out, and she's stumped. And then all of this woman's cats die, uh, Dorothy is her name, and Vera is beside herself. She doesn't know what's going on, and she, she loses it. She, she doesn't know what to do. So she, she turns around and takes action, and uh, then uh, Angelo Cracmo is called in. He's the epidemiologist, and he eventually discovers it's a new virus from the Pacific Northwest. Give us some of the statistics on cats. I don't. I didn't think. I, I just always, you know, knew that there are a lot of cats, but I didn't realize there's this many. Yeah. Um, I have statistics. Oh, here. Uh, I was provided these statistics by the publisher, iUniverse. Uh, they apparently did some quick research. Fifty-seven percent of American households own either a cat or a dog. But that percentage has been increasing over the years. In the 1950s, uh, companion pet owners amounted to only about 44%. And then um, the percentage of households with cats has increased from 21% in 1956 to 31% in 1996. So the, uh, the families and households owning cats has been increasing in recent years. And now, this is surprising, there are more cats in, than dogs in the United States. Six, 64 million cats, 63.8 million dogs. That enough? That certainly gives us the big picture. Uh, cats, obviously, are favorite pets, and and there would be those who, when it comes to animals, would question some of your uh, storyline concerning use of animals for research. Uh, what would you say about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, that is. Uh, a central theme of the story. In fact, the book opens with Noah Chamberlain, the molecular biologist who's doing research on a genetic disease of cats, uh, being first robbed. Uh, all of his cats are stolen by a 
a militant uh, terrorist group, uh, uh, an animal rights group. And then uh, early in the book, the pros and cons of using animals for research are explored by two students who uh, take each of the opposing views. And I believe I've done a fair job of representing the positions of both sides. Uh, my position is clear that animals used in research are a good thing, and they've provided countless benefits both to humans and to animals over the years. From uh, Jenner's smallpox breakthrough in the late 18th century to Pasteur's rabies work to the polio, the oral polio vaccine of Sabin, research with animals has lengthened the lifespan of humans and animals too, because most of the techniques are can be used on animals. Penicillin was first tested in mice. Blood transfusion was tested in dogs before it was tried in humans. Kidney transplants were done in dogs before humans. And the list is too long to, to continue, but uh, it's, it's pages and pages of information like that. Well, you prove a, a good point. Also, your story, World Without Cats, uh, hit, it hints at many potential calamities. We might be able to conjure up a few if you think of all the cats gone. Oh, my goodness, there'd be an explosion in rodents. Yes, I, I have tried to think of all the implications that might come to pass if cats were to die out. Um, I... I don't think I've exaggerated the possibilities. I, there's no way to know, and let's hope we never find out. Uh, but um, some of these occurrences, such as the mouse explosions, are already documented. They're already known to occur, uh, even when the cats aren't wiped out. So it's pretty safe to assume that they would increase in uh, frequencies and in locations if cats did die out. I think... Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. Uh, okay. Um, I, just in the past few days, also, uh, this is a little off your question, but every week there are articles in the paper about viruses that can be transferred to humans from animals or from animals to animals. For example, here in our local paper a few days ago, um, there's a, a report of a swine flu uh, outbreak that's infecting 145 pigs in the, in the Midwest. These kinds of things, uh, humans can get swine flu. They don't often, but they can. Bird flu is an ongoing threat. And uh, so these viruses not only have the potential to wipe out species of animals, they haven't yet, but they could, but they can be transferred to humans. 
with who knows what consequences. And as you point out, we're seeing more and more news reports on these kinds of diseases. Your your characters now, um, Vera, Noah, and Angelo, uh, do they then work together to try to find the cure? Yes, reluctantly, at least in the case of Noah. And at first, they don't realize that they're doing so, but eventually... As the disease progresses, and it looks like the cats are going to become extinct, they get together, and uh, Angelo works through the CDC, where he uh, works, and uh, the other two work in Camarillo and uh, try to develop a a vaccine at first. And uh, they try several versions of vaccine, and they don't work. So the cats keep dying. I well, don't want to expand upon sure, that underst- because I don't yeah, tell the <laughs> readers where it's going. Well, will the reader be surprised by the solution? There is a surprise, yes. And, I, of course, I don't want to say <laughs> what it is. Sure. Well, cat lovers everywhere will really appreciate this book because uh, we who have cats, and most of us have them, uh, I know you're, you've had cats, uh, even though you're f- one of your favorite just passed away, I guess. Yes. And I have a cat, and we've had them through the years. But, but it's, uh, it's that type of scenario. I guess we just all take for granted the cats, the dogs, you know. And, and what, exactly. if, you know, what if something happened? What would that mean to all of us as humans? You're, you're right. I think we do take all of our companion animals and our food animals for granted. But uh, there have been uh, epizootics in chickens that have wiped out huge poultry flocks. Um, in the 13th or 14th century, there was a, an epizootic of foot and mouth disease in England that wiped uh, wiped out the cattle. And the cattle were used less for food, but for plowing. And so the farmers couldn't plow except by hand, which is very inefficient if you use the cattle. And so there was widespread famine. Now that was local. And of course, the cattle are still with us. So uh, in that case, it was oxen, but that's right. Needed. The name of the book is World Without Cats. The author, Bonham Richards. Uh, Bonham, tell us how to get your book. Um, uh, there is a website. Uh, it's simply worldwithoutcats.com. No spaces in World Without Cats. And that has links to various booksellers and a little more about the book. A uh, couple of, I think there's a teaser section uh, and uh, a little bit about me, and a picture of me and my cat, Lilith. <laughs> That's the most important part. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good, Bonham. We appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Environment Betrayed, The Abuse of a Just Cause. And the author is Edward C. Krug. And Dr. Krug joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Krug. Hello. Nice to be with you. Great to have you with us. Hopefully you can help us uh, sort out to this confusion that a lot of people have over the environment. It's been going on for, well, who knows how long, this, this debate over what's harmful, what's not, what we should do now, or should we, is there any time left? <laughs> you've, you've been in the research, you have been in the debate. We appreciate you being with us. Now, I want to read what you have written just a, a little bit so everyone understands the breadth of uh, what we're going to talk about. In this collection of articles, an environmental scientist traces a journey through the wilderness of environmental politics. In his travels, Dr. Edward Krug developed a unique perspective on vital areas of the environmental issues, making him critical of both sides of the environmental debate. Environment Betrayed, his book, delves into numerous environmental issues and into environmentalism itself, presenting both Dr. Krug's opinions and the well-documented opinions of others who were active participants in the environmental arena. So here we are today. Uh, of course, the big, big thing we hear about all the time is uh, global warming back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we heard about acid rain. Now, you've been uh, looking into this for how long? Uh, since the early 80s. In 1981, I became the state of Connecticut's acid rain expert. The expert on acid rain. And uh, at that moment in time, how did you view things? Well, um, when I was tasked to research acid rain, I took a look at what people were saying, and the Envi Environmental Protection Agency told us that the average northeast lake was 100 times more acidic today than it was 40 years ago because of acid rain. And not to be outdone, the National Academy of Sciences a year later in 1981 said that there would be a redoubling of the acidification by 1990. 
basically you would have an aquatic silent spring. And of course, we know by you know what do they say? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and the world was coming to an end, and even President Reagan was very concerned. He was. He was under so much pressure. We started a, a 10-year research program, uh, the National Acid Precipitation Assessment Program, NAPAP, uh, to study the effects and causes of acid rain. And uh, he was under so much pressure that early in 1984, he set up a committee of scientists to study whether we had five years left, uh, whether we should just you know, start to control acid rain now and don't wait for the research results to come in. And uh, a scientist said that, you know, we did have the five years. Uh, the world wouldn't come to an end in five years, and so the research program went on. And uh, now, I mean, that sounds silly, but back then it was dead serious. I mean, most people didn't think we had five years to live. And a lot of money was spent on research. Uh, yeah, um, it was interesting on how the program was set up originally. It was set up at $10 million a year, um, which would hardly pay the salaries of the paper pushers. Remember that we would be researching the causes of acid rain, the, how the chemistry went in the atmosphere, how it was transported in the atmosphere, and its effects on buildings, human health, crops, forests, fish, and then you divide it up among all of the federal agencies that were supposed to be involved in it, like the EPA, Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Park Service, Department of Interior, the National Labs, the Department of Energy, NOAA, NASA, and, you know, there was no money to actually really do research. And when the research money did come in was when President Reagan, after we said we had time to study it, uh, gave us $100 million a year so we could actually start to do some research on the subject. So from that experience, you developed a unique view of this environmental issue, uh, which becomes a huge political political game as well. Uh, yes. Um, the uh, Congress established a Clean Air Act without uh, listening to the NAPAP scientific study in 1990. Before our results came in, they, they decided they would, they would control acid rain. Before the study came in. <laughs> yeah, before the study, So, which at that time was the largest environmental research program in history. So as you look at this whole debate, this whole area of, of environmental issues that seem to be before the public all the time, or, or, you know, today, of course, global warming is the terror often that we feel that the world's going to come to end, at least according to some. Others, uh, of course, debate that and argue against that. But uh, what is this? What, what creates this uh, debate and is you know, from one like myself standing on the sidelines trying to understand it all. Is it just all about money? Is it just about, you know, a lot of folks making a lot of money? Well, the way the research program was set up was that it was a problem to begin with. 
So if you're a scientist, if you want to get the money, you're going to have to say that you believe it's a problem and you're going to research the problem because the research program itself is very much like a living organism. It wants to live. It wants to thrive. And so it was set up on the idea that it was a problem. So, you know, the pay scientists to research the problem and those that, you know, weren't willing to go over there and say before they researched it that it was a problem, they, you know, you don't get the research money, you don't get the uh, the publications, and you don't get the credentials. Um, so that's the come you have so many uh, people involved in, in climatology saying that global warming is this big environmental crisis. And by the way, the global warming funding makes the acid rain funding look small. Um, in the 10 years of the acid rain program, we spent about a little over $500 million, and that was the largest in the world. Well, now the U.S. government is spending about $4 billion a year in global warming research. Just made it dwarfs the acid rain research program. One of your chapter's heading says, don't believe any of it. Yeah, um, because, again, it's, this stuff is stated to be a problem and beforehand. And, you know, so there's, they're just saying it's, it's you know, anything's a problem, whether it's mercury, uh, whether it's population control, uh, global warming, uh, ozone depletion. So how do we get to the bottom of this, Dr. Krug? Is that, is that the essence? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's probably people on both sides of the issue that are that have facts and uh, from research that is is right is right on the uh, target. But this thing just gets does it just get blown up too big to uh, you know because it gets into this political rhetoric? Yeah, well, you read my book, and I go into various. Uh, the various research areas of the environment and I bring in uh, you know literature and, and findings that uh, refute uh, what's being said in fact both sides uh, if you listen to both sides often you won't hear the complete story of what's going on because environmentalists by bringing up the issues, get to frame the way that we think about these issues. For example, the heated debate about global warming uh, doesn't use the correct language. It uses the environmentalist language in, in defining uh, global warming. They talk about the past warm periods uh, as warm periods, whereas in the older literature, they talked about them as climactic optima, in other words, these period warm periods are good for both man and animal, um, and that type of uh, language is missing from the heat of the debate, and that's uh, true for basically across the whole spectrum of environmental uh, issues. And of course, part of this uh, big debate is about energy. Uh, of course, we need so much today, and yet... There's so many who paint it in a negative way that it's just going to destroy the environment, destroy the planet. What's your view of, that, of all of that? 
Um, it's really interesting. Um, my view on it was cemented in 1989 with the announcement of the possibility of cold fusion. Um, you know, do you just stick an electrode in a glass of water and you get energy out of the unpolluting energy? Now, you think environmentalists would be leaping from the tallest buildings screaming hallelujah about this, but they didn't. I mean, every other form of energy we have out there that can make uh, appreciable amounts of energy, they complain about. They complain about coal because of acid rain, and you can't replace coal with fossil fuels because of global warming. And they say go to renewable sources, but if you put up a dam, you change a river to a lake, so they complain about that. Uh, they're against geothermal wherever geothermal is feasible. Um, and when you start putting up a lot of windmills, they complain about aesthetics. Uh, it's not beautiful, and it also it kills birds. So you'd think that with the announcement of the year 3000 technology, cold fusion, I mean, Star Trek, the next generation, needed force fields. you think they'd be you know, really, really uh, happy, uh, but um, they they complained about it very bitterly. Uh, Paul Ehrlich said it's uh, the prospect of cheap, inexhaustible power from fusion is like giving a machine gun to an idiot child. Jeremy Rifkin stated it's the worst thing that can happen to the planet. Ralph Nader and Barry Commoner heaped abuse upon it. Their objection, not pollution, but if this was cold fusion was possible, it would be able to effectively and cheaply generate power. They were against power generation itself. And uh, because it gives man, you know, greater ability to modify the environment. Hmm. So the environmentalists have a certain view of people like you, one of your uh, themes, that there's a certain view of people. What is that? It's population. People are pollution. Um, they have this equation called I equals PAT, environmental impact. I equals the number of people multiplied by the affluence per unit people multiplied by technology. So they view, view modern man who is, we have a higher population than in the past, and we're richer than we were in the past, and use higher technology than in the past, as pollution, population. Uh, they view the people that, you know, were primitives, that lived poorly, you know, they were, didn't, didn't have wealth, they didn't have numbers, didn't have high technology, they viewed them as the environmental stewards. So... I guess they wouldn't want to live the way they'd want everyone else to live, though. Uh, no, they don't. You, you don't see Al Gore living a cheap lifestyle or, or uh, oh, what's his name? Anyway, you don't, you right. don't see them living poorly. No, and that's the, I guess the, uh, really, it's, what's the old saying? You know, if you really want to find out about somebody, just watch them. You know, watch the way they live and what they say and what they're what's really going on. So this debate 
you obviously feel very strongly about it. You've written this book. Uh, in your book, you have some farewell reflections. What does that mean? Farewell. <laughs> well, uh, there, I was trying to make a living doing this, bringing up environmental issues, and no one was willing to support me to do it. So I had a house, and I had three bedrooms as a library, a huge library. And so, you know, I had to, I had to stop doing this and had to get rid of my huge library and downsize my living style. So uh, the people that argue against, there's really no support uh, out mm. there uh, very much for people to argue against against the environmental worldview. Right, against the so-called mainstream view, huh? Yeah. Yes. Well, it's good to have mavericks and pioneers like yourself. Dr. Krug, you help us uh, see things in a different way, and most of us are very confused about this and uh, stretch us a little bit to think out of the box. Uh, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. The, the book title is Environment Betrayed. The Abuse of a Just Cause, Edward C. Krug. Dr. Krug, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon and get it off, you know, buy it from them. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being with us. All right. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Portals, 
And the author is David Goldwasser. And Dave joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dave. Hi, Steve. Nice to hear from you. Well, it's great to have you to explain your fantasy, kind of a Harry Potter meets Lord of the Rings kind of a book. Well, I guess in some ways, yeah. I think a lot of people would kind of find different elements of, of different fantasies within it. I right. think all fantasies contain elements of uh, other fantasies. It's just the way the minds work. Well, it's uh, magic, and we all are intrigued by magic. And let me read just a couple things you've written. Have you ever wished that you had the ability to travel through time and see how history really happened? What if you could use magic to explain the things that seem beyond our understanding? And so this book has that kind of twist to it, that kind of uh, incredible, just uh, let your imagination wander, let your mind just kind of go places it probably wouldn't go by itself. So that's what's great about you folks who can write this kind of fantasy Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself, how this all came about, and, uh, you know, how the book was published. Well, sure. Um, the book is, is self-published by iUniverse uh, because I wanted to get the story out before my teeth came out. I thought it would be a good thing to get self-publishing. It's hard sometimes to get into the publishing world to find an editor get yourself out there. So I did do self-publishing. The the. The genesis of the book, really, um, my daughter, Marissa, who uh, sadly passed away uh, as a result of uh, therapies for cancer treatment, uh, and I were both going to write a book when she graduated from Duke University. She and I both love fantasy, and we were going to write this book. And so uh, after all the dust settled and uh, charity was started in her name, I thought it would be a good time to uh, write the book together just in a different way. Now, the main character, main character, Lissa, is she kind of, Fashioned after your daughter, Marissa? Uh, Marissa, yes. Well, she, Mar Marissa and Lissa are really very, very similar. I mean, the, uh, the heroism and the stuff that comes out of a, a novel, of course, is, is not as realistic. But the, the, the words that you hear from the character would definitely, and, and her whole character really is based on Marissa. Yes, absolutely. Now, also, for everyone's information, uh, your wife passed away within 18 months of Marissa. Yes, 18 months before uh, Marissa did. She had been uh, sick most of her life, uh, complications from diabetes. But uh, Marissa had cancer, beat it one time, and then when the cancer came back again, it was much more virulent, much more difficult to get rid of. The therapies involved were much more toxic, and it was just too much of a strain uh, for my wife, and it led to her death. So Marissa passed away at 20 and your wife at 49, and we really Correct. are, our hearts go out to all, you and going through all of this, but out of all of that came something I guess you will always treasure, uh, because it probably reminds you of both of them. Uh, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, much more Marissa, um, you know, she had so much uh, to offer to the world, and uh you know, never really got the chance to do it. She had been accepted to Duke University. She was incredibly bright. She was a gifted uh, student, a gifted athlete, a musician. Uh, she was fluent in sign language. She just had a lot of great gifts and a great way about her. And, uh, you know, we, we all lost something when Marissa left us. Now, your book, you say, combines real history with amazing magic. Now, give us a little flavor of that. How, how does that work? Well, uh, this particular book, uh, the, the first of the series, is set in the Bronx, actually one of the boroughs of New York City. 
and uh, I did a lot of research. I had, was born there, uh, so a lot of the things I knew about, but many things I learned. And, and I took events that occurred in, in real history throughout time, going way back to the time when the Indians, uh, really the Native Americans, were, were the only people in, in the Bronx, all the way up to, you know, all the way up to current times. And I took events that occurred, but put magic into it. So a lot of times we don't understand why things happen. For example, there's an incident in the book where talks about a Ferris wheel that broke loose in an amusement park uh, called Clawson Amusement Park, and uh, eight people were killed in that incident, and why the Ferris wheel fell off in a storm, nobody could really exactly say, but we kind of explained it through magic, and what happens is a magical war kind of going on at that time. Uh, so we, we kind of interwove the history and the magic together to make it uh, help explain some incidents that we couldn't otherwise explain. Now, the main character, main character Lissa... Uh, she's been able to, I guess, tell that others are thinking what they're thinking even before they speak to her. Yeah, one of her one of her magical gifts, and she had it before she even realized she had magic, was that she really could could determine when somebody was telling the her the truth or not. Uh, so it was a, it's an interesting concept, uh, you know, it's something you might not want to know growing up, uh, and it kind of plays into different areas of the story as it goes on, but yeah, it's one of the first things she kind of knew about herself was that, you know, she, and she would know if somebody was thinking about her, if she was in their thoughts, she kind of had an idea that they were, and that plays out in the book as well. And Lisa in the book is fighting for her life with deadly cancer, and, and out of that, uh, I guess, come some amazing adventures. Absolutely, she's 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 thrust into a, a magical world that she never expected, and learns that she has uh, a magic that's incredibly powerful, and learns how to use it, and and has to make lots of decisions and choices about how to use that magic, and and what she needs to do in each different situation. Now, your book starts out with a description of a young man named Nicholas. Uh, don't know much about him except uh, something magical happens right at the beginning. Yes, uh, you know, Nicholas is Lissa's father, uh, and what occurs to him in, in his youth, uh, this one singular event kind of starts off the whole process for, for what happens down the road and kind of sets the stage for, for what's to come, draws the reader in and realizes, you know, you've entered a kind of a different universe, a universe that combines the real world and, and the magical world. Now, he is told by a stranger, a, a, a real stranger, very different stranger, especially the way he looks, the way he's dressed, uh, that it's what? It's not his time? What is, what is that about? <laughs> well, the book is called Portals, and Nicholas, uh, in the very beginning, has touched a spot which we would call a portal, a way that people with magic could literally travel through time and space. But Nicholas is too young and not yet aware that he even has magic, and so uh, a wizard comes and intervenes to prevent him from making a mistake and traveling without uh, supervision, as it were. Well, that experience uh, would fade a bit over time, but he would always remember it until some exactly. fateful day, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, you've, if you've ever had an incident occur to you in your life where something happened when your childhood and kind of nags at you as to why it happened, and then suddenly something else happens in your life, kind of a serendipitous event, and says, maybe that's why that happened. Maybe it was meant to be. You know, we always use those terms. You know, things that were meant to be are karma. 
uh, you know, in Jewish as an expression bashert that was meant to happen. There, you know, the book does a lot of that. The magic helps to explain things that were sort of supposed to happen, or why they miracle, miraculous things happen that we can't have an explanation for. As Lissa lies in her hospital bed, she's unaware that in a very far away city, a, a place called Lights Keep. Yes. Uh, there's a group of wizards, and what are they? What are they thinking? What are they expecting from her? Well, the wizards of light, uh, as well as the wizards of dark, and you can imagine who the good guys and the bad guys are. There, uh, the wizards of light have been waiting, just as the wizards of dark, a long time for this this uh, prophesized child of the scroll, who is going to change the balance between light and dark forever. And uh, one of the wizards, in particular, believes that Lissa is that child. And so they're going to do something about Lissa to try to bring her into their world. And also Lord Verdex. Verdex? Yeah, that's his name, Verdex. Yeah, Verdex. He's not He's somebody you'd want to meet in a dark alley at night. Seven feet? Seven feet tall? Yeah. Yep, seven feet tall <laughs> and, and every inch filled with malice. And so, of course, this she has to battle him, and there must be... Uh, I guess she only can be saved by her magic. Well, magic certainly plays into it, and choices play into it, and heart and courage, and, and lots, of, lots of things play into it as, as to whether they will actually come together and meet and fight. I don't want to give away any secrets, but, sure. you know, uh, it certainly looks like they're headed in that direction. So it's this thrilling battle uh, between good and evil in this fantasy tale and this young girl, Lissa, has to struggle uh, to control her magic and, and make that kind of choice that will help these, as you put it, two vastly different worlds find peace at last. So she is the one who will be the, I guess, the that has the destiny. Yeah, she's the catalyst for many things that occur, that's for sure. Any other uh, characters that play a very important role in helping Lissa or fighting against Lissa? Well, sure. There's Treb, who is the uh, one of the, the major wizards in the in Light's Keep. Uh, uh, Yura, Master Yura, who is is a spellcaster. There are there are different roles. There are war wizards like uh, Lady Ebob, who's an incredible warrior. Uh, Treb, who's a who is skilled at all areas. There's a healer named Kered. You, you have healers and you have spellcasters and you have uh, all kinds of magical entities that, uh, that, that come to play in, in different ways. There's, uh, on the evil side, you've got Verdex, of course. You've got an, an amazing character called Yibrik, who is a spellcaster who, who will, uh, you'll just be, keep shaking your head every time he appears. And I guess uh, her father plays a part in this right through the whole story. Yes, yeah, so well, Nicholas certainly, uh, you know, searches for his daughter and, and ends up uh, crossing into the world of magic and uh, finding a way back to his daughter and trying to help her through all that she has to endure. And some of the themes, and we've already mentioned uh, this concept of choice, uh, that's very important in all aspects of life, obviously. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, all characters in, in books end up facing certain choices. How they handle them is, leads to the way we view them, hero, anti-hero, villain. You know, choice is always, uh, always in effect, but uh, it's an impact on our entire lives. We're always faced with choices each and every day, from the simplest things of what we're eating to breakfast, uh, you know, to uh, you know, what we're going to do about a personal situation that impacts us closely. So. 
and of course for everybody. And of course, those who have motives of just seeking control of everything around them, everybody around them. Yes, absolutely. That's that's another aspect of choice, not necessarily a positive one. And that isn't just in the fantasy world, obviously. <laughs> no, it's not. It's in everyday life. And the value of wisdom. Yes. Uh, I mean, that plays a crucial role in here. And I think in, in many fantasy books, you always find, uh, you know, a, a certain wizard who who lends him or herself to to setting the stage for how and why we do things and providing the wisdom necessary to help make intelligent choices to guide us along our path. I think it's important, just like mentors in real life. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Dave? Well, if I might, you know, uh, I just want to mention that a portion of the sale of this book, whether it's as an e-reader or hardcover or softcover, will go to the Marissa Fund, which you set up. It's a 501c3 dedicated charity, uh, and that works to tirelessly to provide money for cancer research as well as to provide money for families when uh, insurances uh, don't work or hospitals can't provide services. We kind of step in and provide money there. So uh, we started a campaign, A Million Reasons to Wipe Out Pediatric Cancer, and this book sales are, are a part of that. Well, congratulations on that. And, uh, again, we our heart goes out to you for going through this incredible journey with your daughter and your wife, but here you have this book now that is a keepsake. Well, absolutely, but I, I think, you know, you know, my heart goes out to the children, the pediatric cancer patients who, you know, I want to, to live long enough to to have a full life and to, and to get to read Portal someday and, and look at their parents and say, you know, what is, what's cancer? What is that? You know, I'd love to have that day when children say, what is cancer? And nobody knows what the word means. That would be wonderful. Well, Dave, David Goldwasser, the author of his book, Portals. Dave, tell us how to get your book. Um, sure. You can, you can go to any of the major bookstore websites as well as the iUniverse website and order the book that way. No problem at all. Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can get an e-reader version, as I said, or you know, which is uh, selling for only $3.99, so it's a really good price. Or you can get a hardcover version or a softcover version. Any, any of the major book websites will, will guide you right to the book. Or you can go to the marissafund.org and there learn about the Marissa Fund and also what will connect you directly to links where you can order the book. Thank you for being with us, Dave, on iUniverse Radio. I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.